Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell and this week guest host Evan Brown. Episode 111, recorded May 13, 2011, Tat Wars. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by Trim Tonic, the natural appetite suppressant tonic that takes the edge off of being hungry. Visit braintonic.com for more information. Enter coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 111 of This Week in Law. I am Evan Brown. I'm an attorney in Chicago, and I write the Internet Cases blog at internetcases.com. And I am filling in for Denise this week. Uh, She is out. So I've assembled a a great panel of of three of the smartest guys out there when it comes to this stuff about uh, law and and technology. So we're going to have a great time uh, talking uh, for the next uh, hour or so uh, with uh, Eric Goldman, Jonathan Bailey, and Venkat uh, Balasubramani. Eric, how's it going out in uh, California? As usual, it's another beautiful day here in California. That's great to hear. Eric, uh, uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, Professor Goldman's uh, work. He is a, uh, a professor of cyber law and intellectual property at uh, Santa Clara University uh, Law School, School of Law out there, and directs the, uh, the High Tech Law Institute. What's, uh, what's going on? What's the big news out there in Santa Clara these days? Uh, er, the big news is that um, so we're on summer break, so I'm loving it. Oh, that's great. Any seminars or anything coming up this uh, this summer? Anything we should know about? Um, I have a long list of activities, actually. I continually add stuff, so I have to post that um, online. I won't uh, do the spamming here. How about that? Yeah, that's, well, you know, that's that's great. Uh, Venkat, up in uh, Seattle, how are things up there? No complaints. Uh, surprisingly nice day. We've had some uh, really terrible weather, uh, and it's nice to have a break, so... Like like every other cliched Seattleite conversation, I'll have to throw in a little bit about the weather over here. Right. Yeah. It, I guess it'd be perfect if you hold up a cup of coffee then too with the rainy weather. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's got the flannel. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We're going to see you're going to see Eddie Vedder in the background here in a little bit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there it's we go. Nice um, to be on, everyone. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Venkat is uh, one of the founders. Uh, he's an attorney at uh, Focal PLLC. So, how's uh, how's the practice going? You've been how long have you been been uh, had the doors open there at, at Focal? Um, for about two, a little over two years, and uh, things are going great. Just um, busy, which is bad, and obviously good. So I can't right. complain that front. Right, right. Well, it's great to, great to be talking with you. And uh, now going down to uh, Louisiana, we have Jonathan Bailey from uh, Plagiarism Today. How are you, Jonathan? Doing all right. The uh, Mississippi River's above flood stage. It's pouring rain. I think if we start to run out of a beat of beer, we have to send in the National Guard. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. It's pretty interesting times here in New Orleans. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're uh, you're definitely sporting the pirate look all the way around, which you know I have always found, <laughs> uh, you know, the the Jack Sparrow look and everything. I have always found it to be quite the the irony or quite the paradox that you that you write a blog and you focus so much on plagiarism, but yet you 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 carry the uh, the, the the pirate moniker so well. What's up with that? You know, I was actually very interested in pirates long before I ever had interested in copyright. Um, I, I, for example, even before I was really into plagiarism today, I, was, I went to the Pat Croce's Pirate Museum in Key West. Uh, previously, when I was in high school, I could identify, I think it was 25 different pirates by their flags alone. So I've always had a thing for pirate lore even before I got into copyright, and I've just reveled in the irony ever since. So there you go. Yeah. Right on, right on. Well, uh, glad you're uh, glad you're with us today. I'm, I've been really excited about this uh, conversation. Um, you know, we're all familiar with each other's work. You know, the stuff we write. You guys all write really, really great stuff. So um, let's start off uh, talking with uh, or talking about something that could fairly be characterized as breaking news, at least in in these contexts. I want to give a shout out to uh, Jeffrey House, who is a uh, who likes the uh, This Week in Law page over on Facebook. He posted a, uh, a link last night uh, that comes from, I guess it's from one of the New York Times blogs. Yeah, the Media Decoder, which is one of the New York Times blogs. The news is that the, uh, the record labels have settled uh, with LimeWire, in this case that's been going on for, for years and years. And it looks like the short version of the story is that they uh, have... Uh, stopped their their the, they're in the 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 trial or the damages phase of the trial, figuring out how much money LimeWire and its founder uh, Mark Gorton was going to owe. They were asking something like you know well over a billion dollars, and looks like they've settled it for uh, substantially less than that for about a hundred and five uh, million dollars. So it's going to take care of this uh, this you know long uh, ongoing uh, lawsuit against uh, this this um, you know this well-known P2P provider. Uh, I'm wondering what your uh, reactions are to that. Eric, uh, what do you think of this settlement? What should we, uh, what should we make of it? I've taken the position that peer-to-peer file sharing law in copyright is different from all other facets of copyright law. And so from that perspective, um, I don't know how much we learn. We learned that another P2P file sharing service is biting the dust. They're going to go out in a flame of glory. Um, but I don't know that it teaches us a whole lot about anything else, either within the space of peer-to-peer file sharing or uh, uh, outside of it. Um, I've been noting, and, and there hasn't been really great coverage of this, um, I've been noting that uh, there's been just a string of rulings from uh, the judge in anticipation of the damages trial. And um, there was a lot of really interesting um, uh, rulings that came out that I think kind of got lost in the shuffle there. And so in some sense, I'm actually relieved uh, that the settlement's taking place because I'm hoping it's going to stop this string of rulings, um, many of which are probably not going to be all that um, favorable for uh, some of the interests that I uh, favor. What do you think, Venkat? What was your reaction when you heard uh, $105 million settlement? You, I don't have a good sense of the economics of the record industry, but it seemed like a somewhat low number and probably a drop in the bucket for the record companies who are claiming, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars in damages. So, you know, I think they taught the the company and its executive a lesson and that they're going to litigate these claims uh, vigorously. But at the end of the day, I don't really know what it means for the record companies as far as what they're going to do in the long term. And I'm most curious about that. Good. Jonathan, um, how does this fit into the overall 
uh, picture of, of piracy. Uh, you know, LimeWire, of course, is, you know, what was with us for a long time, all the way back uh, from, you know, 2000 when it was founded. Um, how does this play into the, the whole picture of, of piracy from your perspective, being, you know, one very focused on, on this whole, you may even characterize it as a scourge, you know, the, the stealings, <laughs> stealing of other people's work. Do you see any special significance in kind of the end of the LimeWire saga here? Um. Not really. As far as the purposes of piracy and piracy enforcement and whatnot, that end came some time ago when LimeWire was shuttered and also when LimeWire was found to be liable. You know, going into this damages trial, it was really at that point we were just tying up loose ends more than anything. And at that point, I really didn't see why both sides were allowing this damages trial to go forward. It just didn't make a lot of sense. It seemed like neither side had anything to lose. LimeWire is almost certainly going to get hit with a huge amount of statutory damages, especially since the jury did not appear to be very sympathetic. And they were not doing particularly well in the uh, first few days of the trial, it seemed. But the RAAA risked either, A, getting an award that was absurdly high and caused a PR disaster and money they would never see, or getting an award that was incredibly low. It could have been as low as, I believe, like $7.5 or something compared to the 105 they settled for. Um, they risked getting a really low award, and that could have been seen as a major blow to the RAAA in their enforcement efforts. So neither side really had anything to gain in this damages trial. I'm amazed it got as far as it did. Yeah, and I guess $105 million is not anything to, you know, shake a stick at. If I had a check for $105 million, I wouldn't let it just fly out the the uh, the open window in the in the car or or, or whatever. So so we, we we are at a point now where we we're we're seeing kind of what appears to be the end of the litigation based on that old peer-to-peer model you know that started way back just you know right after Napster the 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 technology that was at issue you know with Grokster and Nutella and all those all in that case that went up to the Supreme Court in 2005 you know that model of peer-to-peer um, uh, technology and stuff like that. And we've seen more of an evolution into newer forms of, of file sharing, including, uh, well, mainly BitTorrent. And so there's also this case that uh, is, is still going on. Uh, it's, it's been on appeal up in the Ninth Circuit. And I wanted to talk with you guys about this. In our show notes for today, um, Michael Barkley, he writes a great uh, blog called IP Duck. Uh, and uh, last Sunday, uh, May 8th, he wrote a great post that uh, outlines some of the goings-on in front of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out there in California, where you are, Eric. Um, a couple of cases, a couple of important copyright cases involving secondary liability going up, uh, you know, in argument in front of the, the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And one of those cases was Columbia Pictures uh, versus Fung. And this, uh, you know, just to briefly lay the groundwork here, this, this case involves some similar uh, theories and similar, uh, you know, analogical uh, thoughts as what was going on in the Grokster case and also in the LimeWire case, the responsibility of the provider of the technology to allow uh, these files to be shared and their responsibility uh, in all of that. Uh, Eric, did you um, did you take a look at the at the comments about the the oral arguments in in the Fung case? And uh, if you did, what, uh, what what's your reaction on that? Uh, I did take a look at it, and uh, the Fung case has made me nervous all along. Um, the uh, the um, 
the way that uh, the entrepreneur was running that site uh, definitely raised some yellow or red flags for anyone looking at the situation. Um, and in my mind, uh, this case has the potential to be another example of this peer-to-peer file sharing exceptionalism, uh, where the court says, um, this was all about BitTorrent. BitTorrent is bad by definition. Anyone who touches BitTorrent goes down and um, uh, and so uh, that's going to take down Fung and his websites accordingly. Um, I was encouraged by the summary to suggest that the judges appear to be doing the kind of diligence we expect from judges, that they were actually looking closely at the um, facts and trying to figure out um, uh, exactly uh, how to apply the law to this particular set of facts. And so I'm hoping that this will not just be lost in the overall mania about the idea that BitTorrent is bad and this is a BitTorrent-related site and therefore there's nothing more to talk about. Um, that's what I got out of the summary, but we have to see what the judges actually say. Venkat, do you share in that sentiment that uh, this this uh, liability over or this litigation over secondary liability is is different in nature, kind of stands on its own in the whole body of of copyright law? What Professor Goldman's saying that it's 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 so separate like that. What do you think in, along those lines? I I do agree with that, but I think that we might be starting to see Grokster infect things other than just peer to peer file sharing and. Um, most interesting about the fun case was that Google filed an amicus brief and they made a couple of points and I think it's a good read and uh, one of their points was about the relationship between inducement and the DMCA safe harbor but the other kind of overarching point and one of the reasons I think why they stepped in was that you know, what's the effect on other technologies of a ruling in the Fung case when Fung was saying, hey, all we do was is offer a search engine or, or an ability to find files and connect users and taken to the extreme. I can see how Google would be nervous uh, about an adverse ruling on that case and about the district court judge's ruling. So um, I, I think it's interest, definitely an interesting case, and the oral argument is worth a listen. And I think that ruling could tell us potentially about the extent to which Grokster is limited to peer-to-peer, -peer or you know, there's this separate uh, exceptionalism for for peer-to-peer, -peer or whether the standard's going to spill over into other contexts. Do you have anything in mind when you're thinking about what some of those other contexts might be? Because clearly peer-to-peer -peer file sharing of music and of videos, uh, you know, gives us a, a great example for this to, or great context for this to have come onto the stage. What else uh, do you have in mind, if anything, that, that, that could be affected? Or maybe what do you think Google has in mind with all of its concerns? Well, I, th I think part of Google's concern, I mean, there's, a, there's another issue which Google brought up is the effect on the overall architecture. But I think one concern is just, just that the evidence that the district judge pointed to in finding inducement is, wasn't really tethered to the architecture of um, the technology in that case. So the question is, could it even apply to search? And, you know, I, I think you can look at the ICE domain seizures and, you know, they're certainly arguing that, um, you know, sites that link to infringing content and allow users to access infringing content could themselves be uh, liable for infringement. So that's potentially one example. But um, we'll see what the court says about that. Right. Yeah, you bring up a, a great kind of subtopic there, one that's, you know, we've talked about a lot on the show, this whole idea of bringing in the domain name as 
an, an, an issue, something to go after in copyright litigation. And, and Jonathan, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm picking on you, but I always hold you out as an exemplar of somebody who's very much, um, you know, pro-copyright ownership uh, in, the, in, in the perspective that you take like this. And I, and I, and I want to, um, uh, you know, just kind of get your perspective on, on what you think of aggressive tactics, uh, you know, going after things like domain names, really taking a scorched earth approach to, to copyright litigation. What, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about that? I'm not necessarily against going after domains. Uh, one of the things that has been irritating me and indeed a lot of others is that there seems to be a lack of due process or at least a lack of an appearance of due process on a lot of these seizures. And it, it, I don't want to get into a situation where, you know, it's it's like a DMCA takedown type thing where you see infringement, boom, you grab the domain, you file a little form, you get the domain. You know, the DMCA takedown process, for example, is meant to be very surgical, remove only the suspected infringing content. You don't necessarily yank an entire domain, don't take a whole site offline. And I would really like to see, you know, a little more due process in this because these domains are potentially very valuable pieces of property that people own. And it to me, seems unfair to take them without at least some kind of, you know, some means of, kind of arguing for and against it, some means of actually dealing with this in an adverse, in an adversarial um, environment. So that's my main thing right there is the need for due process on these matters. So we, as we know, the the party, the plaintiff who has really been, uh, at least in the public's perception, the worst about this, what some might characterize as overreaching, you know, these grabbing for domain names is this mm. company, Right, right Haven, that we've talked a, oh. a, a lot about, uh, you know, I think even Wrong. when you've been on the show before, uh, Jonathan. So, and I know, Eric, you um, expressed uh, in our email communications uh, this, this week leading up to the show, and I know that you've posted several interesting things about uh, developments with Right Haven's aggressive copyright campaign here. Uh, why don't you tell us what's on your mind uh, these days about Right Haven and what it's up to and how the courts have reacted to its uh, campaign of going after uh, those who it thinks uh, is infringing content online. What's, what's up with that? Uh, if you don't mind, I just want to make sure everyone uh, is familiar with the few basics on Right Haven. Uh, so uh, Right Haven is a company that has struck deals with various newspapers um, that allows Right Haven to acquire the copyright in specific newspaper articles. Um, right Haven those, then goes and sues people who have reposted those articles. The last few hundred have been uh, allegedly only involving 100% reproductions of those articles or photos or graphics, whatever um, uh, asset they acquire. Um, and Right Haven doesn't send takedown notices. So they simply go into court, uh, they sue, um, but at some point in the process, uh, they um, uh, uh, indicate that a settlement might be available uh, if uh, the um, target doesn't want to risk their domain name, uh, their livelihood, uh, their their future children, and so on. Um, and Right Haven, uh, uh, I should add, uh, uh, sued one of the companies I work with on the side. Uh, that matter has been settled, um, but I, I hate to sound like a uh, a, a completely neutral source here. Um, I was I was bitching about them before my uh, client got sued. I'm bitching about them after uh, it settled. <laughs> so I think I've been consistent, but uh, I should just note that. Um, and uh, Right Haven um, has been just getting beaten up in court um, as judges really take a close look at what they're doing. And I think there's at least two different dynamics clear, uh, converging. 
Um, maybe three. One is that Right Haven has taken, in some cases, very aggressive positions. Things like demanding a domain name as a copyright remedy, which law simply doesn't support. Um, the second is that I think that Right Haven's advocacy has not been the most skilled. Um, and I apologize. It's just a biased statement. It's my assessment of the situation. I think that uh, they... Um, uh, have made some choices that uh, many litigators kind of scratch their head and say, really? Um, and then finally is, I think that the judges recognize that this is a uh, mass li copyright litigation uh, effort, and uh, they're skeptical about the merits of that. Um, and so uh, Wright Haven's been getting pushback from various judges. No, uh, uh, no knockout blows the way that um, we might expect, uh, or at least not. We won't know their knockout blows until we see how the appellate courts handle it. Um, but Wright Haven's been taken on the chin in a variety of different formats. Judges have questioned the legitimacy of the copyright acquisition and whether Wright Haven has standing. They've rejected Wright Haven's argument that it gets the domain name. Uh, they have uh, found fair use, and in some cases, uh, in ways that I think are, are very aggressive applications of fair use, simply as ways of saying to Wright Haven, no. Um, so Wright Haven's on the rocks. Uh, they have brought in some big guns. They've hired a very expensive New York attorney to come in and uh, uh, try and bail them out on the uh, copyright assignment issue. Um, they're appealing some of their cases. They're still filing new ones. Um, so uh, the Wright Haven machine keeps going, but uh, uh, I think they're running into some uh, perhaps unexpected snafus. One of the most interesting snafus that they've run into is the perhaps... Uh, unexpected yet pleasing success that defendants have had on the fair use argument. You alluded to that in, in your comments uh, right there. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the courts have said you know, on that question of fair use when the defendant has come into court saying, Judge, this is really, uh, you know, this shouldn't be treated as something I should be liable for because I'm, I'm doing it uh, this way and, it, and it's a fair use. What, what's going on there, Eric? What, what have the courts said? Uh, well, the first fair use ruling uh, involved a, a snippet uh, that the defendant had republished. Uh, I can't remember, let's say four out of uh, uh, 20 paragraphs or something on that order. Um, apologize, I don't remember the exact stats. Uh, and uh, that was, I think, a fairly easy case for judges to say, you know, they just took a portion of it. Um, what are you really bitching about? Um, the more recent rulings have involved 100% uh, reproductions, um, and we have two. Uh, one involves a newspaper article where a judge said, perhaps a little surprisingly, uh, that 100% um, uh, reproduction of a newspaper article, a very long one too, it's 33 paragraphs, um, uh, was protected by fair use. And along the way, the court noted basically that there was no sympathy for Wright Haven as a plaintiff because Wright Haven's only business was to sue. It wasn't like there was a cannibalization of the newspaper's revenue stream. That wasn't an issue because the newspaper wasn't a plaintiff. It was only uh, Wright Haven in uh, the plaintiff's seat. And therefore, the, there was not really an easy way for the judge to measure how the uh, the defendant's activities hurt Wright Haven's economic prospects. Um, so uh, that's going to be true in all of Wright Haven's litigation. Now, the second ruling from the same judge just a couple weeks later involved a graphic as opposed to a, um, a newspaper article. And I think that judges treat visual images differently than they treat text. And so the judge didn't give the defendant a clean win on the... Um, uh, on the fair use question with the graphic, 
Um, but it still said, because Right Haven is in this business of suing people, um, I'm going to weigh the, the last factor, the effect on the market, in favor of the defendant as a matter of law. We're not going to talk about that one anymore. Right Haven, you're going to have to convince me and all the other factors if you think you're going to win. Um, and so as long as that approach continues, um, Right Haven's fair use arguments are going to be extremely difficult to win. On the text arguments, it may not have a lot of success at all. It may only have a chance on the uh, visual images. Venkat, I'd like to direct the, the same uh, question same. to you and to, to Jonathan, and it's picking up on this whole idea of Righthaven being in the business of doing what it, it does. It's not the author, the original author of these works, but it has acquired them purportedly by assignment, and it goes out and does this as a, a business. That is its business model to sue on the copyright rights of somebody of, uh, that originated with someone else. Venkat, does that uh, mesh with your good senses and, and, you know, what, uh, what, what the appropriate uh, status of a, of a copyright plaintiff should be? Um, well, I, I first I'll add that I'm definitely one of those people who have scratched my head uh, repeatedly when I see Wright Haven's litigation tactics. And um, I haven't been involved in any Wright Haven cases, but I've, you know, my initial instinct was this just looks like a debacle waiting to happen. And so um you know, it's it's easy to say it, it's 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 definitely comforting to see courts take a close look at these cases. Um, as to your question about the copyright assignment, uh, I have to confess that I don't know I don't know the answer from a legal standpoint. But I would think a copyright plaintiff could conceivably assign its claims. There shouldn't be some sort of absolute bar to assigning your claims as a copyright plaintiff, but. Uh, I think there was a ruling that Professor Goldman uh, either either blogged about or cited to that actually um, linked to or uh, highlighted the actual agreement between Wright Haven and, and the Assani. And um, there was definitely some confusion about whether it effectively did the job. So I wouldn't be surprised if everything is not up to snuff from a documentation standpoint. Jonathan, uh, looking to you, what do you think about that? This being the appropriate uh, status or role of a, of a copyright plaintiff—is it the right thing to do if what we're doing is, uh, uh, you know, doing anything at all to to stop works from being copied? What, what say you? You know, I'm no fan of Wright Haven's approach at all, to be honest with you. I mean, my view on the matter has always been that copyright enforcement and, and whether it be legal or other methods of enforcement. It's there to support a business model. It's not there to become the business model. And that's what Wright Haven is trying to do, is trying to turn copyright enforcement and copyright litigation into a business model unto itself. And that that makes me very, 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 very nervous and very upset. And I've watched this Wright Haven debacle, and you know they've been losing on the fair use issues, and they've been basically making a mess of things pretty much since day one, more or less. And, you know, my big fear with Wright Haven is, A, you know, a company like this that is so hated and so despised and is now sort of worn out its welcome with the judges, they come in and bring these arguments. And they may, especially considering they're obviously not having the best luck, best of luck as litigators, they might cause rulings to come about that could hurt other cases down the road or could affect, you know, interests that I have down the road. So, you know, I think, you know, Right Haven is definitely way out of line with its tactics. And frankly, 
I'm kind of glad they're in a bit of a mess and getting sandbagged. Yeah. So I'm... Right. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, hey, Jonathan. Can I jump in? Yeah. Uh, Evan? Sure. Um, yes. Go ahead. Uh, Eric. You mentioned about the the business model of a copyright troll, and let's put that aside. But the the sales pitch is that um, Right Haven's going to put money back in the pockets of newspapers. And um, what do you think about that? Do you think that there's merit to the idea that um, newspapers, one way or another, should uh, be able to generate low cash flow from litigation? They, I think there's an argument that they should and they could, but part of it, A, is why not simply have your own attorneys and go in, you know, as, you know, yourself in these matters rather than pawning the rights off to a third party, perhaps poorly pawning those rights off on a third party. I think that's one element of the problem. That's one reason the judge mentioned there's no sympathy for Right Haven. Um, and the other issue is um, using litigation purely as a means to earn revenue. Um, especially off the statutory damages in these cases, it, it just feels a bit weird to me. You know, there have been other attempts and other ideas. A company that I've done some work with in the past called Attributor um, had the uh, Fair Syndication Consortium where they were trying to do a thing where they were detecting all this news content in the web and getting a share of the ad revenue rather than filing takedown notices or filing lawsuits. I think there are other alternatives that are worth exploring first that it doesn't appear that Stevens Media um, and the clients of Right Haven, the Denver Post, um, are willing to explore at this time. I'd like to add something to that as well, which is, I mean, I'm fairly skeptical that that uh, the kind of, you know, reproduction or excerpts or blogging or what have you is contributing in any way to, you know, the downfall of newspapers. I think over the last couple of years, everyone is just coming to the conclusion that, you know, it's not about the paper. You have to change your business model. And I think Right Haven's choice of plaintiffs have really undermine any argument that it had yeah. to begin with that, you know, this is contributing to the downfall of, uh, the you know, newspapers. And I, di I didn't believe it to begin with, but if you're looking at the, the defendants that they've sued, it's it's laughable almost. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I, I like what you're you're saying there, Vincat, because they they haven't done the best job choosing the plaintiffs. And, and as a result, they look a little bit silly and you know they can't even get the support of somebody like like jonathan bailey what i would like to hear somebody say <laughs> or at least make the argument for is that this this model by uh aggregating or consolidating the rights into one entity that can then go out and uh and try to enforce those rights maximizes a certain efficiency that in turn elevates the importance of the copyright right and you know undoes the harm of of infringement or illegal copying in a way that could not be accomplished by a bunch of individual lawsuits, uh, you know, filed by each of the uh, each of the publishers in each particular instance uh, by you know doing that individually. I mean, can anybody just for the sake of argument uh, support that with any any good sense? I'm just just saying it. Can anybody can anybody uh, support that with something rational? Well, we've seen something like that in the music industry. The very licensing agencies that work in the music industry have done something kind of similar to what you're describing, but the emphasis is not so much on enforcement as it is licensing. I mean, these bodies do do the occasional enforcement work, but that's not really the focus of them. So I'm, I'm stretching there. I apologize. <laughs> no, hey, uh, I mean, Evan. Uh, yeah, hey, Eric. Um, yeah. 
I guess uh, I remain deeply skeptical that um, there's any value to newspapers in trying to sue individual reader type people who want to share with their audiences. Um, whether that's aggregated together or not, it just strikes me that that's not in the best interest of newspapers um, in the long run. That um, uh, they that uh, what they'll do is disenfranchise their community of readers to stop talking about them to feel like they uh, can't engage with the newspaper, and then the newspaper becomes irrelevant. The newspaper that nobody is talking about is, is actually probably not going to win in the long run. So um, it strikes me that um, it doesn't make any sense to aggregate or disaggregate. It strikes me that the, the big question for the newspaper has always been, where you, wh why do you think this is going to be in your long-term interest? Even if you had net incremental revenues, or I'm sorry, net incremental profits from the litigation itself, you might still be losing money from the rest of your business because of the litigation. And I think those questions really need to be answered. Um, one other thing I'll add is that um, uh, the re you know, going to Jonathan's point about um, if the newspapers really feel strongly about this, they ought to um, uh, they ought to see themselves. Um, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me that Stevens Media was trying to avoid the risk of being subject to a 505 fee shift. That if they were to bring the lawsuit and lose, they uh, might have to write a check to the defendants for their attorneys' fees. And it seemed like Stevens Media was trying to insulate itself from that exposure. And that's, I think, another good reason why newspapers might choose not to go out there and become uh, copyright plaintiffs in any fashion. Um, because uh, if they pick the wrong cases, um, uh, it may end up costing them far more than they anticipated. Good. Ben Cat, got, any, got anything to add? Nope. Good. Well, let's, uh, you know, Wright Haven certainly gives us plenty to, uh, to talk about, even if we're not talking about the newspapers themselves and, you know, spreading the, the good word uh, by word of mouth, you know, about what the newspapers are doing uh, in terms of their content. We can at least talk about them in terms of what they're doing outside of that content. So let's, let's talk about another uh, quick situation here where we can all sit around and wonder whether or not litigation or threats of litigation over copyright in that context makes sense. Did you guys see the article uh, in, the, in the show notes for today from the Hollywood Esquire at HollywoodReporter.com? about uh, the, the, the guy who did Mike Tyson's uh, tattoo suing, trying to get an injunction, uh, stopping the release of Hangover 2 because of the, uh, the way that that uh, tattoo appears on Ed Helms' uh, character coming up in the movie. Uh, uh, Jonathan, what do, you, what do you make of this? Does, this? does this make any sense? This is the type of question that gets asked by professors in law schools and law and ethics classes all over the country to get students thinking and to make them wonder aloud. Um, this is a very strange case. I, I first uh, read about it a while back, and it's always kind of baffled me, the issue of copyright and tattoos. It's sort of one of the uh, strange side areas. As far as legality of it, he seems to have registered the work. He seems to have a proper copyright. I don't know if the work itself is copyrightable, and I don't know if the um, use of it on Ed Helms is a derivative work, or perhaps you know it's, or perhaps it's a, you know, you can argue a fair use as a parody or whatnot. But it's, it's, it definitely raises about a, a thousand fascinating legal issues all in one tattoo. Pretty impressive work, actually. Venkat, how do you address that question of fundamental weirdness of claiming copyright in something that's rendered on, on another's body? Um, <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, it, to, instinctively, it seems like there is no bar to uh, being able to copyright something like that. I mean, you can create a drawing and uh, the fact that it's you know tattooed on somebody's body 
um, tweaks the analysis a little bit, but I don't think completely undermines potential uh, claims for copyright. You know, I think there's a the last the lawsuit. I was pretty skeptical of the lawsuit, and it looked like a pretty typical. You know, let's try to file. I think he sought an injunction trying to prevent the movie from uh, being released, which I think is pretty unlikely. And um, I'm hoping he actually owns or originally created the the tattoo in the first place. I mean, it looks like tribal art, and maybe there's somebody out there in uh, New Guinea or somewhere who comes along who says, "Hey, I was the one who created this originally. I put this on the block in Hawaii, and you came along, copied it, and I'm actually the owner." So I, you know, I'm pretty skeptical of the lawsuit. But we'll yeah. see what the court says. Eric, is it fair use? Uh, and let me, before I answer that, let me just go back. So uh, I'm the law professor that writes exams that uh, uh, come up with crazy hypotheticals like Jonathan was talking about. And I actually only write my exams from uh, stories from real life because they are so much crazier than anything I could ever come up with uh, with my limited this is imagination. This very true, yes. <laughs> so, very, very true. Very true. You, you know, I mean... Uh, if you do a hyper-technical analysis of the situation, this could very well be copyright infringement. We have a copyrighted work, potentially, that is being copied um, and, uh, you know, prima facie case. And then, as evidence you asked, does that mean we can turn over uh, to fair use and find a defense on fair use? And on the one hand, we have a major commercial production uh, and uh, there's lots of money on the table. And so uh, it becomes awkward to say that it's fair use when we see all the money. On the other hand, we say this guy's tattoos, the value, the commercial value of this tattoo is not going to be denigrated in any way. Um, it's an editorial usage, not some kind of advertising-based usage. This could very well be fair use. Um, you know, uh, but the reality is we know what's going on here, and Venkat was driving at this. Um, this guy is hoping to get anything that might uh, uh, hit, uh, hold up the delay of the release of the movie, at which point then the... Um, the producers are willing to write very large checks to get the movie back on track. So this is, looks like the kind of thing that's a holdup game. Yeah. Try and stop the process um, uh, um, uh, using legal tools um, and then uh, try and buy, get uh, the producers to buy back the right to keep going on the track they were on. Um, you know, uh, in the end, it strikes me as unlikely we'll ever truly find out the legal merits of this claim. One way or another, either the complaint's going to go away if the... Uh, um, uh, if uh, the guy realizes he doesn't have the rights uh, or can't win, um, uh, or they're just going to write a check to say, get out of our way, let us go make millions of dollars in this movie, um, and we'll throw you a bone just to get you out of our hair or out of our face, I guess. Very quick, well. Quick very well said. Oh, go if ahead. I ben, just ben add, add a quick point to this. Um, I think I, in reading the news reports, I saw that he had documentation that I guess he must have signed with Mike Tyson that said, he retained the rights to the art and i'm wondering if he granted mike tyson a license to walk around and you know publicly exhibit it or what was going on That's, there i mean it almost seems like a joke but you know that was my next question i was going to ask kind of as a hypothetical based now upon reality um if a tattoo artist tattoos a copyrighted work on someone's face what assuming there is no actual license what kind of implied license is imparted to the person who's receiving the tattoo to use that work. 
I guess uh, I, you, I would don't, go ahead, Eric. What do you think? Well, we actually had this issue, um, and I'm trying to remember the basketball player. The name has escaped me just at the oh, moment. Oh, yeah, too. I forgot about um, that. Oh. Ran into this issue a couple of years ago. Um, I want to say it was maybe Rashid Wallace, if I'm remembering correctly now, um, who had very distinctive tattoos and was trying to commercialize them, and the tattoo artist was making similar noises. Um, you know, uh, I, I have no answer for you. Um, you know, as a law professor says, uh, those who are getting tattoos should uh, <coughs> negotiate the IP rights with their tattoo artist uh, in advance and uh, not only get the consent to, um, uh, to uh, display their, it on themselves, but to allow others to replicate it if they're emulating or uh, uh, pretending to be the other person as well. Um, so uh, any of you out there who want to do the, your um, copyright license with a tattoo artist, uh, one of the three of us will be delighted to help you negotiate that. Right on. I'm sure that um, all the athletes <laughs> that getting tattoos are going to be right on that, you know. So. Well, let's, uh, you know, we, we need to take a, a quick break. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm filling in for Denise this week, but she is with us in not only in spirit, but also in a uh, pre-recorded message from one of our sponsors, Squarespace. So let's take a quick break and we'll get back and we'll talk about the uh, TwitPick terms of service modification. So Venkat, be ready after this quick message. Hi, folks. It's me. Hope you're enjoying the show. I know you're in good hands and you're enjoying this great panel. I'm here to say thank you to one of our sponsors for the show, and that's Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. I use Squarespace. I absolutely love it. It is uh, really the best way to publish a site on the web because it marries everything that's good about blogging software and everything that was good to begin with about posting and publishing websites. You can do as full-featured a site as you want and yet have all the simplicity of the UI for managing a blog. It's easy to use UI, just makes it a joy to put up whatever kind of site you want. Um, it can be as simple or as complicated, as many pages as you'd like. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. So whatever your level of comfort with the web, Squarespace has got you covered. Hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of the designs to fit your needs. There are beautiful iPhone and iPad apps for updating your blog or site on the go. Online resources and a special support team to give you personal help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All-inclusive service, it includes several modules to build your website, the blog module, which includes import and export, and support for WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. That means that if you're presently using one of those platforms and you'd like to just try out something new, it's really, really easy to move your entire site or blog over into Squarespace. And should you decide after your free trial that you don't like Squarespace, well, you can move it right back on out of there again. Or after you've been using Squarespace for a really, really long time, it's very easy to just move your blog elsewhere should you decide to do that sometime down the road. There's a form builder. You can collect email addresses and other information from site visitors. And there is a Flickr photo display. You can choose the thumbnail or slideshow view. There's a Twitter widget. You can display tweets on your site in a customizable and great looking format. There are social media buttons to connect your website visitors to your networks on Facebook and Twitter. There's Google Maps and more. The website tracking tells you how many times your site is viewed. And there's a built-in search engine optimizer. There's permission access handling, cloud architecture for speed and site stability. Please use Squarespace for all your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it anytime. 
For your free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill. Sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website. And after you try it out, be sure to check out their annual plans for a savings of up to 20% off. That's squarespace.com slash twill, T-W-I-L. Thank you so much, Squarespace, for your support of This Week in Law. And now, back to Evan and the panel. See you. So, um... TwitPick, uh, you know, one of the favorite third-party applications to take advantage of the uh, the Twitter uh, ecosystem. And, you know, it, it what it allows you to do is to upload a photo to the web and put out a tweet that links all your followers to that photo. Um, has, has had some issues with copyright and the ownership of, of the digital photos in the past. And it has modified its terms of service to address uh, some of these uh, thorny issues. Uh, Vincat, you wrote a great post on, uh, on the blog uh, this past week about this story what can you uh, what can you what can you tell us about the issue and how has it been resolved and uh, what still uh, needs to be worked out what what's going on here well a quick piece of background on the twipic terms of service and that's that uh, there was a dispute last year between uh, a photographer and a photo agency afp around uh, haiti earthquake photos and uh, the photographer claimed that afp downloaded these uh, photos that were very iconic photos and reproduced them and sublicensed them through its network. And AFP came back and said, well, the the terms of service of Twitter or TwitPic grant us an implied license to exploit photographs that are posted to the service. And the court disagreed with that argument and rejected AFP's uh, assertions. And that was last year. So recently, uh, in May, I think last week, TwitPic changed its terms of use, and the the revised terms of use were somewhat confusing, and they purported to restrict users from granting a license to agencies, photo agencies, and other entities who would commercialize these photos. Now, someone pointed out that this restriction only applied to photos that were removed from TwitPick, but that seemed, you know, it's, I think the, I'm curious about what the intent of TwitPick was in including this restriction in there. And uh, so there was a, a hue and cry over this, and I think everybody rightly saw this as a power grab on the part of TwitPick, and uh, TwitPick revised its terms again in response to the user outcry and took out this provision, which said that users who upload pictures to TwitPick could no longer license to certain third parties these pictures uh, for removal from TwitPick. Now, what's interesting about that is shortly after TwitPick revised its terms of use and announced this in a blog post, there was a news release from uh, a news organization or might have been a photo agency that said that, uh, you know, we are the exclusive agency of record for TwitPick and um, we're going to be the sole point of distribution for pictures uploaded to TwitPick. Now, what was unclear from the news reports and what I think what remains unclear is whether TwitPick is actually going to go back to users when they license the pictures to uh, this agency or whether TwitPick can just funnel the photos to the agency. And we all know that uh, 
many newsworthy or uh, just valuable photographs are uploaded to TwitPic. And I think the big question is, is TwitPic uh, exploiting or, or licensing these photos, gaining revenue, and uh, are the users going to see in any of this revenue? And I think one of the big lessons, I mean, this is almost obvious at this point, one of the big lessons from this episode is that giving advance notice to, and clear notice to users is extremely valuable. And I'm a user of TwitPic. I don't really post anything of uh, value on there. I mean, just kind of my day-to-day pictures that I upload to Twitter. But I think uh, an email or a message that they would send you to say, hey, we're changing the terms. Here's what's going to happen going forward. And you have a week to do what you want or take your pictures off would have engendered a tremendous amount of goodwill and i think a lot of people would have just said okay whatever you know we're not we're not that concerned about it so i think even the revised terms don't make completely clear what role twitpic plays but uh perhaps the bigger lesson is that when you're changing user terms it's uh, it pays to give notice and i think scribd and other companies have learned this lesson the hard way and this is just another example in uh in a similar circumstance jonathan what do you think about that uh the the tactful way that a platform should notify its users that its terms of service uh have have changed especially if it's something problematic what's the what's the right thing to do i think vencat hit the nail on the head on that one uh email everyone involved let them know the terms uh, have changed. Uh, try to explain the terms in plain English. This is a problem I seem to encounter all the time. Uh, people who are relatively legal savvy, who are pretty smart individuals, but their eyes kind of glaze over when they see a terms of service, and I can't really blame them. I mean, we're all adults here. I think we're all going to have to admit that at least once in our lives, we've accepted the terms of service without really reading or even really skimming it. Um, so, you know, they need to put it out there, explain it, put it in simple, easy-to-understand terms so that people can make informed decisions. And I think if they did that, um, it would, like, like Vincat was saying, it would engender a lot of goodwill. It would help people make informed decisions, and it would prevent these kinds of uproars and these kinds of, you know, incidents of, quote-unquote, confusion. Eric, do you know anything that uh, the law has said as to why not only would that engender a bunch of goodwill, but also might make sense from a, a legal standpoint? Anything along those lines? Uh, well, there's the general issue of how you amend a user agreement uh, to change the rules. And um, my position is that if you want to take more stuff from people, uh, you need their opt-in consent. Um, you can't simply have something that says, uh, we could change the rules by posting on our website, Take more stuff uh, by n- and never tell you. Um, and, but I, I, I actually would like to put all that aside, I think, for this discussion because um, that issue hasn't really come up here, although I could see um, someone who was really angry with TwitPic uh, raising whether they properly amended it. Um, I think the bigger issue here is how did they screw it up so badly, given that they knew there was an issue with their initial version, they launched a new version, and then two days later they had to fix the new version. Um, I don't understand how that went so wrong. Um, it, I, I, you know, it started, I think Van Cat's coverage got me wondering, maybe this wasn't simply an accident. Maybe they didn't just get sloppy in their drafting. Maybe they were trying to do more than just fix a problem. And um, so, uh, you know, I think the broader lesson is for companies that are changing, as Jonathan was saying, 
piece super clear and plain English always is the best. Good deal. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit and go from uh, digital images to uh, music online. Uh, you'll remember earlier this uh, this year, just a couple within the last couple of months, within the last month maybe or so, I've lost track of time. Amazon launched its uh, cloud player service, which uh, is excellent. Have, have any of you used Amazon's cloud service to to store and retrieve your your music, Eric? Have you used it? I uh, haven't. Sorry. What about you, Vincent? My problem is that they only allow twenty gigabytes of storage. Um, and I have more than that. So I can't actually upload everything I've got on my hard drive. So it's not a complete solution for me. What about you, Venkat? Have you tried it? I have not. I have not either. Not not John yet. Jonathan? I've actually got it up and I'm using it. Well, I'm not listening to it right now, but it's up in another tab right now. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I finally tried it. Uh, you know, we're talking about the Amazon uh, cloud player here. And it's just, it really kind of changes, changes things really dramatically, you know, making it, uh, my, my initial thought after I had done this, and I think I mentioned this on, on previous episode, is it seems that we're moving into an era where it's becoming more clear how the, the amount of storage that you have on your local device is becoming, uh, you know, largely irrelevant as, as things move to the, to the cloud. Uh, that's such a cliche to talk about things moving to the cloud, but it looks like Google is doing just that with the uh, music service that it announced this past week will be available uh, in, in private uh, beta. Uh, and like Amazon, they are doing this, uh, you know, here's the, the legal, the copyright angle of this. They're doing this, uh, you know, notwithstanding the, uh, notwithstanding the absence of a clear licensing arrangement with the major uh, music labels. So um, I wonder, you know, how we're supposed to think about this, whether this is, you know, uh, foolish bravado on the part of Amazon and now on the part of Google, or whether they're, they're doing the right thing, kind of charging boldly in, uh, in charting these, um, well, uncharted waters when it comes to the, the copyright uh, rights that should attach to, to music that a person has bought and just wants to store and be able to retrieve from the cloud. Jonathan, what are your thoughts uh, on, on how smart uh, Google now is entering into uh, a space like this, this way. You know, um, I read an article on TechCrunch not that long ago. The uh, owner of MP3 Tunes, which we'll remember was an, it, it still is, an MP3 locker site similar to these, but goes back much further and is currently in litigation with the RIAA and the, and the various labels individually, I believe. Um, he had kind of a sort of an insider's perspective as to the demands that the record labels were trying to put on these type of um, MP3 locker sites. And it was, some of it was, seemingly insane stuff like you couldn't upload mp3s without a digital receipt well that creates a problem for everyone that rips their cds or buys mp3s from amazon because there's two formats there that you don't get a digital receipt um so there were problems like that there were issues like you could only uh, one label said you could only upload from one computer there were all these restrictions and basically i think you know google got tired after years of negotiation of pulling its hair out and they decided to move forward and yes there's some thorny legal issues the the biggest right now that i see is whether or not this type of streaming from one individual uploading and li listening to it again whether that constitutes a public performance of the work but you know I, I think they just decided that if they're going to go into this they have to go now they can't wait for the record labels to you know come around they have to move forward and just drag them kicking and screaming, I guess. Eric, let me run something pretty radical 
uh, by you, see what you think of it here. Suppose that the record labels were somehow able to figure out what music users had put up into the cloud, whether it be on Google's servers or onto to Amazon's servers, and then, then they started sending massive numbers of, of DMCA takedown <laughs> notices. Would that be the, the sign of Armageddon, or you know, what, what, how actually would that play out, you know, or how should it play out if there was something you know, uh, strange uh, imagine, like, you know, go back to, like, 2007, maybe 2006 or 2007, before Viacom sued YouTube, and it was sending something like 100,000 takedown notices to YouTube about copyrighted works there. Well, how, how should that play out if, if that were, if that radical scenario were to, to come about? Uh, great question, and one that I'm not sure we'll ever get to. Uh, one of the questions that I've been scratching my head about uh, is how the um, uh, the record labels would find out what users had uploaded into Google's storage. Um, it, the way that Google's offering up the functionality, it's supposed to be individual to the user. So there shouldn't be a public playlist, for example. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually not clear how uh, the issue could even come up. Um, where the record label knows what any individual user has. Um, were we to get that far, I would imagine that Google would uh, handle a takedown notice like it would any other. Um, it tends to pull uh, 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 files pretty uh, freely in response to the 512 uh, C3 takedown notices. Um, but uh, I could see Google saying that we really think our users have such a strong fair use right to simply store their music in the cloud in an archival basis that um, they might force that issue. Um, certainly if I were a record label and Google didn't honor the 512C3 notes, I'd be pretty nervous about suing my users on this one. Um, it's certainly not even as good a case as the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing cases the record labels bought. And... Those didn't turn out so great for the record labels anyway. Venkat, uh, you know, Amazon was the first one to be bold about this. And, uh, you know, they're there in your backyard in, in Seattle. Is it just something in the water that, that makes them, them bold like this that, that you share? Or uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that uh, if a takedown was issued and Google took down the file, I wonder if there's an opportunity to, um, you know, file... Uh, a wrongful takedown type claim. I haven't thought it through, but I'll just throw that out there. Um, and I'm beyond what uh, what's been discussed already. I don't. I I can't delve into the legal issues, but I think I come back to LimeWire and think, you know, here's an instance of a legitimate companies that are launching this service, and the record companies are. It's, the rubber is really just hitting the road as far as what they're going to do with their future and are they going to enter into deals with these companies or, you know, ultimately I think that's the direction music and uh, everything is heading in. So it, it'll be an interesting couple of years to see what happens. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great segue. Uh, we should take another quick break here to uh, have Denise uh, chime in uh, with a word from our other sponsor for episode uh, 111, which is Netflix. So take it away, Denise. Hi, folks. It's Denise Howell, and I'm here to thank our sponsor, Trim Tonic. Trim Tonic is a natural appetite suppressant tonic that takes the edge off of being hungry. I've ordered it. I've been drinking it for the last few days. Uh, you don't want to drink more than one or two a day. That's what they recommend. Uh, it's got a really nice taste. It's uh, sort of a sour berry flavor. And it really does take the edge off of being hungry. 
It also gives you a bit of a jolt, although it uses no stimulants to get this effect. There's no caffeine, no hoodia. Instead, they use active ingredients, some of which have clinical studies showing their ability to curb appetite and reduce body fat. The three main ingredients are acaranthus aspera and ervingia gabonensis. These are seed extracts, and they're both tropical plants used in India and Africa for curbing appetites. The third ingredient is coca leaf extract, uh, and you can rest easy on that one. Uh, when people hear coca leaf, they uh, tend to think of cocoa tea or um, other less uh, legal substances, but uh, the cocoa that they use in this product um, has been decocainized, uh, and it's just left with its appetite curbing effect. Just as coffee can be decaffeinated, you can do the same with cocoa, I guess. And that's what they've done here. So if you want to check it out too, if uh, perhaps you feel like uh, you could use some help on that portion control part of your diet, then visit braintonic.com for more information. Enter the coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount. Thank you, Brain Tonic. Back to the show. Hey, yes, Eric. Um, before we segue, can I just make one more point on the Google Cloud Storage? Yeah, why no, don't um, Colin? We'll just why don't we just tee it up? It's something that you want to say, like on the record, right, Eric? Yes. Like as part. Okay, good. Uh, okay, so Eric, uh, anything more to say about uh, cloud storage? Uh, yeah, um, the fact that Google launched uh, such a stripped-down functionality, I think, is um, a really dramatic example of. Um, how uh, copyrights are interfering with technological innovation. Um, there's so much more that Google could have done uh, with a cloud storage um, uh, functionality that it didn't. And uh, they didn't because of the problems negotiating with the labels. And uh, I think um, all of us might be the lesser for it. So um, there's, I think, a lot of uh, rhetoric about how copyright interferes with innovation. Sometimes I think that rhetoric is overblown. Um, but I think here we have a nice dramatic example of, um, uh, of how copyright actually did uh, chill uh, innovative new services. That's great. That's great. Well, we've been, we've been talking a lot about uh, the copyright. Essentially, everything we've talked about so far in the episode has, has been about copyright. So I'd like to, to uh, before we move off of, of that topic, just cover one thing real quickly that was in our, our show notes for today. And this, this, I don't think this is anything necessarily new, but it's something that just came to my attention this past week. The, the SIIA, the Software and Information Industry Association, um, along with the, the BSA, the Business Software Alliance, you know, these organizations that uh, take it upon themselves to, uh, well, they're, they're in cooperative arrangements with the major software uh, developers, manufacturers, and su suppliers to uh, go out and enforce uh, the copyright rights in this software against companies who uh, have loaded unauthorized copies or unlicensed copies of software onto their onto their systems. And so, um, in, in our show notes for today, we've got this uh, page that that talks about uh, or it essentially encourages people to report piracy. It often comes up where it's a, a former employee that leaves a company and knows that there was unlicensed software on the company system, and it reports it to the SIIA or the the BSA. And the thing that is really uh, particularly intriguing that I want to get your guys' take on here is the fact that there is this reward system uh, for reporting piracy. If you click through and read the FAQs, 
uh, on the on the website siia.net, the Software and Information Industry Association. There's a there's an anti piracy FAQ, and if you scroll down, there's a little chart uh, that that promises. Uh, rewards to those who rat out uh, instances of of privacy or of, of piracy, uh, so that if there is a settlement extracted, uh, anywhere from uh, ten million to twenty million dollars, or I'm sorry, over twenty million dollars, the one who reported uh, the piracy can get a million bucks. Um, this just seems really radical. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful incentive, I guess, uh, to to have folks. Uh, you know, turn states' evidence, if you will, one way of putting it. Uh, so I'm wondering what your, your reactions uh, from this approach are. Venkat, what do you think about uh, how this fits into a copyright enforcement scheme? Um, it's interesting. You know, I don't think it necessarily raises any legal issues. I mean, I think you could get into trouble where conceivably if a departing employee uh, reports their employer but then provides additional information you know maybe there's a there's an argument out there for some sort of uh, tortious interference argument or something like that but from a legal standpoint it doesn't seem to raise any immediate red flags um, I, you know I, whenever I hear about these rewards programs whether it's for uh, taxpayers or you know there's other categories of um, False mark. I don't. I don't know what all the different categories of lawsuits out there. I always wonder whether people actually take advantage of them, and um, or is it just like a publicity ploy that that's just out there? So, I don't know the answer to that. It looks interesting to me. Uh, I I question ultimately how effective it'll be, but we'll see. Jonathan, do you like uh, a setup like this? Does this make good sense to you? Well, I have to agree with Venkat. I don't think this is so much about encouraging people to report piracy, but so much more about making businesses that might be tempted to, you know, engage in illegal copying, making them think twice, saying, hey, there's a lot of incentive out there for someone to report us, and we've got all these people around, and someone can be kind of mad. Maybe it's, you know, cheaper and easier just to go ahead and buy the software. Well, but that being said, I have to say um, – I think this would look a lot better if they did it in the form of the old Wild West posters, you know, Wanted, Dead or Alive, and then put the reward at the bottom. I think that'd make a, uh, make a much better message than a little chart buried in an FAQ, but that's just that's my design speaking up. Hey, right. Jonathan, your, Jonathan, I think yikes. we now know what you should do to replace that pirate flag behind you. I know. I, should, I, I think I'm on to something. You guys are on to something here, honestly. <laughs> that's that, that's great that's great well let's um let's move hey, away uh, from i'm sorry evan uh, before we move on i just want to note um uh mike masnick of tech dirt has been tracking some of these reward programs and uh he keeps trying to find examples of where uh the uh reward payers have actually paid out the maximum dollars amount uh, uh offered up um and uh, i believe he's never found an example of that so uh maybe that's because uh the stars never aligned or maybe it's that um uh, these reward programs um, uh, maybe are are trying to sound bigger than they really are. Yeah, and that that comes honestly as as no big surprise to me. My concern has always been that uh, you know there's just a really weird in. Uh, uh, mixture of incentives here. If uh, I have, I get the sense that oftentimes the one who reports these things is the same person who was responsible for loading them onto the system when he or she was an employee, and that just to me puts up uh, a, a really uh, inherent conflict of interest that is not healthy, healthy for anyone. That's that's my big concern. Hey, sounds like a good deal to me. 
Yeah. I have one quick thought here that just ran across my brain. Uh, yes. Here in New Orleans, they're running a big uh, billboards all over the place for this. A big program saying report, you know, get tip the police. One violent crime, one arrest equals five thousand dollars. So you know, I turn in a murderer, I get five thousand dollars. I think I can make a lot more money just turning in corporate pirates. Judging from this chart here, I mean, wouldn't take much. Right. Right. Especially if you work in their IT department at one point. Exactly. Yeah, I'm yeah. Thinking about get, I think I'm getting a job in IT somewhere. There's got to be a good payout here somewhere. <laughs> right. Well, um, like I said, we've been talking about copyright the whole show. We've got a, a few minutes left uh, to talk, uh, you know, before we uh, get into futures in biotech, which is coming up uh, after this episode of, of Twill. Did you see the article in the, the show notes for today from uh, Fred Wilson's blog over there about an explanation or possible explanation for the recent Sony privacy uh, breach debacle uh, being in retaliation for Sony and the government going after uh, George Hotz, you know, the alleged uh, PlayStation 3 hacker uh, so, um, you know, so vigorously and it being in retaliation for that. Um, wondering what your guys' reaction is to, to the idea that uh, this, you know, rather than what, as Fred says here, being a question of whether, you know, this is right, whether the prosecution and the, the litigation against this initial hacker is right or wrong and whether or not hacking is right or wrong, you know, kind of transcending that question, uh, whether or not this is just a reality of, uh, of life that we have dealing with uh, hacker culture. Uh, what, what's your reaction? You know, is that, is that a good and, and healthy view of, of reality and how we should, uh, should think about these things? Eric, what's, what, what's your take on this? Uh, let me deflect to Venkat. I'd like to hear his thoughts. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm ha retaliatory or alleged retaliatory instances of hacking just kind of sound scary to me. And uh, it always happens in a very erratic and unpredictable way. So I will just say that I'm hope I hope I'm never uh, the victim of something like that. I doubt I will be cross my fingers, but um, I, you know, it, it just seems too unpredictable to really come back and say, well, you know, in response to this, we should, um, you know, take a different tack on uh, the, pro you know, on these types of prosecutions. Jonathan, anything? Um, I don't know if I like using the word healthy, but I think what you said earlier was a pretty accurate depiction. It's, it's the nature of the uh, anonymous nature of the Internet and, and anonymous in that sense. I don't necessarily mean anonymous, the group. I mean anonymous as in, you know, the lack of a solid identity. Um, retaliatory hacking is commonplace. It's not just for these types of legal campaigns. It's when you express an opinion people don't like. People get hacked. Um, when you do um, just about anything, someone with a any amount of computer skill online, it seems like this type of thing is getting more and more common. It's more and more frustrating, but it just highlights the need for proper security for companies like Sony to be thinking about these things in advance and to be aware of these possibilities so they can prepare for them and hopefully deflect them. Yeah, and so what? What uh, it kind of takes me back to what you just said, Vincat, about you know fearing. Uh, or being concerned, at least, about being the target of one of these things. And I think we should just all establish for the record here that Vencat is an upstanding guy and would never have. <laughs> if I can just add one, uh, one quick point, and that is that um, I think in response to this uh, incident, there was a class action lawsuit filed, and, you know, Query asked to what it means that 
uh, Sony was the alleged victim of retaliatory hacking as far as, um, you know, the information might be put out there, but is that the same as somebody coming along and stealing it and misusing it? So I'll just throw that out there as a, as a final thought. Well, I mean, and I could transform that into a question that raises an issue that I know, Eric, you've been thinking uh, and writing about a lot, and that's the question of damages. Uh, you know, let's focus on the, the damages that one would allege in a lawsuit against Sony for having his or her information being, you know, within the set of data that is obtained by a, a hacker, whether it's shared or not. Um, what, 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 what do you want to say about the trends that, that you've been seeing about how courts treat this idea of whether or not uh, a victim of a data breach has uh, an actionable remedy and, and whether or not there really is uh, something that, that, that the law should do about that? Anything you want to say along those lines? Yeah, uh, two observations. First of all, the FTC has been interested in data breaches and treating them as a form of false advertising and uh, seeking out their own bus. Um, I think that the FTC has a pretty um, generous definition of what constitutes false advertising when they're trying to go after data breaches. Um, and so, um, but that may be the more likely scenario here of um, of, a, of a punishment that sticks. Um, in terms of the um, uh, class action lawsuit, um, uh, many of the judges are, are looking for some evidence of actual damage that the individuals whose data was uh, was um, uh, um, uh, was grabbed uh, have suffered and. Uh, the plaintiffs have a really hard time putting that together. They can put together a story that says, I was promised X, I got Y, and I'm in fear of Z. Um, but the fear of Z doesn't uh, support a legal cause of action in many cases. And so um, the judges have really been scrutinizing uh, the um, the requirement of um, defendant, I'm sorry, plaintiffs having suffered some form of harm before they let these cases go forward. Um, Venkat just posted on uh, another one of those cases this morning. All right. Well, well very good. Um, we're, we're, we got to finish up here in just a few minutes. We got time to talk about one or two more things. There was um, the situation over in the high court in uh, the UK. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which court it was it was in here, but there was a Huffington Post article about this. And Eric, this is right in your your bailiwick uh, because this has to do with with identity and um, uh, you know the ability for people to say things online and and uh, either speak anonymously or or honestly or or both of those things here. But what we hey, have hey, here, Evan, hey Evan, um, just on yes. that, um, you might direct the question elsewhere. It's possible I'm going to end up being involved in that case, so. Um, I'm probably going to watch my words. Oh, good, good. Um, we'll, we'll we'll toss it out anyway. I'll go ahead and, and kind of explain what it is here. This this American billionaire Lewis Bacon um, has filed a lawsuit over in uh, the UK, and it's a libel lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit. And we know that there are the special issues that arise, you know, under UK law, which you know differentiate it from uh, the US uh, law. But it sounds like he has uh, gotten an order from the court which directs uh, Wikipedia, WordPress, presumably WordPress.com, and the Denver Post to turn over the identities of certain online commenters uh, that, that allegedly posted these, these uh, defamatory statements about him online. So we're presented here with a question uh, that puts us squarely 
uh, you know, in contradiction with with uh, the general note with, with how the UK is going about this and the sensibilities that we may have here in the United States, the protection of uh, of uh, the identity uh, from some uh, from disclosure, the, the protection of the identity from disclosure in response to a court order like this. And I'm wondering, uh, Venkat, then, since uh, since uh, Eric uh, should not discuss this given his potential involvement, uh, do you have any uh, reaction to this uh, order from the the UK? that you'd like to share with us? Well, so I think recently the uh, Speech Act was signed into law and uh, this is intended to prevent forum shopping in libel and defamation cases. And uh, the Speech Act also says that uh, any any foreign decision that's not consistent with Section 230 can't, can't be enforced in the U.S. And so... The question is, um, obviously, third parties like Wikipedia and, and Automatic, um, the uh, plaintiff is not going to be able to sue them. But the question is, um, is do, the, do any procedural protections that are typically afforded to anonymous plaintiffs apply by virtue of the Speech Act? And is the plaintiff, in this case... Uh, filing a lawsuit in the UK to try to get at the identities of uh, people that he could not have obtained under US law. I, from my initial glance, it seems like he would have had a tough time showing uh, or would not have had an easy time showing that uh, he was entitled to the identities and would have had to jump through a bunch of hoops. And I'm guessing he didn't have to do that in the UK. So the big question is, whether uh, these companies are going to comply or whether they're just going to say, well, that's great. You know, if you, if you want the names, you got to come to the U.S. and get a U.S. court order in order to get the names. So definitely a very interesting issue. Right. Great. Well, I, I, I tell you what, I would love to uh, spend the rest of the afternoon talking with, uh, with you guys about all this stuff. This has been a great conversation, but we've, uh, we've got to wrap up here. Our time uh, together has, has come to uh, an end. Let me go around and uh, get uh, any final words and, and say goodbye to you all. Eric, uh, thanks a lot for, uh, for, for being here. Uh, where are you online? Where can, where can we track you down? Uh, I uh, am at www.ericgoldman.org. Um, I run a blog at blog.ericgoldman.org. And I'm, e, uh, I'm Eric Goldman at Twitter. And Evan, thank you very much for filling in for uh, Denise. Um, you didn't crack any Orange County jokes or any uh, uh, Cal Berkeley jokes. So um, we definitely noticed the change. Oh, good. Yeah, that, that does, it does make it easier when you, you know, when they're not always set up so so great so yeah that that's great well it's it's been great uh, talking with you uh, as always uh, Venkat uh, tell us where where we can find you online well uh, typically I blog at uh, Professor Goldman's blog at uh, and he already he already mentioned the domain name and uh, Twitter is also where I can be frequently found and my username is at V Balasubramani. I've been advised numerous times to change that, but for some stubborn reason, I'm going to stick to it, and that's where you'll find me. Yeah, it sure is distinctive. I hope you. I hope you stay with it, uh, Jonathan. Uh, great to talk with you. I guess what we're about to learn is the correct spelling of plagiarism. How uh, how, do we, how do we track you down? You can find me at plagiarismtoday.com, P-L-A-G-I-A-R-I-S-M-today.com. And Plagiarism Today is also my Twitter handle. Um, just seek me out at those places if you're interested in tracking me down. But please don't hack me. That's all I ask. 
right on. You, you, you don't deserve it either. So, yeah. Well, great. Uh, thanks a lot for, for joining me, uh, folks. Uh, tune in uh, next week at the same uh, time. We will be here with a great panel of guests on episode 112. And that is it for episode 111. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon.